Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis 45, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He, made, he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, and for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have, ever, and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After this, his brothers talked with him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning, good morning. If I haven't met you, uh, my name is Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And it was probably just over a week ago, um, I was going out to my car, and I hop in the car, and I was going to go pick up my daughter from school, and I shut the door, and what do I hear but this unfortunate noise of glass falling to the pavement. I look in my rearview mirror, and what do I see but my back window bashed in, right? Right, I know, super bummer. Um, <laughs> Major, major uh, snag on the day, uh, and I have to be honest, like in one sense, nothing was stolen, so that's great news, but in another sense, that's even more frustrating. It's like if something's stolen out of your car, you think, well, maybe they needed the money, like, and so there's a party who's like, you know what, they need, but there's nothing more enraging than what feels like senseless vandalism, right? Nothing's taken, just smashed, there wasn't even anything back there, so I don't, I don't know what was going on, um, and to make matters worse, you know, I'm out there. And bless her heart, my neighbor is out there too, and she sees me discover this, and she goes, oh no, I'm so sorry. <laughs> All I could do was laugh like a crazy person. Like, <laughs> I was like, ha 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 ha, you know, I was like, well, you know, sometimes, you know, it happens, what are you going to do? And I ran inside, like literally looked insane. Um, <laughs> I had all these emotions inside of me, and I didn't know what to do with them. Because what I really wanted to do was to find the culprit, grab them by the collar, look them right in the eyes, and say, I forgive you. No, that's not what I wanted to say, right? Of course not. Nobody wants to When you're in that moment, we've all had that feeling, what do you want? You don't want forgiveness, you want 
justice, right? And you don't want someone just to fix it. You want someone to pay. You know, there's like, there's a categorical difference there, right? Between fixing it and someone paying for it. We've all been there where just forgiveness, especially in the moment, just feels absolutely absurd. Absurd. When's the last time, let's just do an imaginative here experiment, you know, when's the last time you felt like forgiveness was absurd in your life? What's their name, right? What's the face that instantly popped up in your imagination the moment I asked that question? Because in one sense, it's kind of easier if you have a faceless culprit than it is when it's someone we know. When it's someone we know, the intimacy of that wrong, the connection, it almost feels unforgivable, doesn't it? Because whether it's family, whether it's friends, a spouse, children, a colleague, in one sense you think they should know better, right? Forgiveness at certain points in life just, just feels really hard. And if you're honest, it can seem impossible. We don't want to admit it, but in that moment, either the pain that's been done to you or the pain that's been done to the people we love, sometimes it's even harder to forgive those who have hurt someone we love rather than someone who's hurt us. The intimacy of that wrong, the history, the anger, it just feels like too much. And I know that journey all too well. The longer you live, the chances are really good you know that journey for yourself. And I also know, listen, you look across the pages of the Bible, it doesn't take you very long to realize that forgiveness is all over the place, right? And we, I think we all can kind of say and agree that good people forgive people, right? And it takes you about two seconds to read about Jesus to realize that Jesus finds forgiveness extraordinarily important. He doesn't just compel us to forgive, he commands it. When he teaches his disciples to pray, what does he say? Like right in the center is, Father, forgive you know, us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's built into the identity of following Jesus is the necessity that you will forgive people. Jesus, when he's dying, when his murderers are looking at him, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. For Jesus, there are no exceptions for forgiveness, period. And still, <laughs> it's like we pick up our stones and we're just ready to toss them at the next person who slights us or the ones that we love. Like we say we want to forgive, but in reality, we might want to say a couple words and then be a little passive aggressive with revenge in our mind in the background, right? Don't act like that's not your MO, like you've never done that. We all have room to grow when it comes to forgiveness. And that's why I'm so excited about this story this morning. This story this morning, the story in the life of Joseph, as we continue to walk through the book of Genesis, this moment here, we find, I think, one of the greatest limitations, but it can also simultaneously be one of the greatest catalysts for forgiveness in your life and mine. I think if we come to understand this really important component when it comes to forgiveness, it'll lead to a different way of living. I think a better way of living. And what's so fascinating is whose lips we hear this amazing nugget from. This is from Joseph. I mean, if anybody had the right to be embittered, if anyone had the right to withhold forgiveness, if anyone could say, you know what, I want justice, I don't want forgiveness, it's this guy. And then yet, when the moment comes, what does he do? Somehow he finds the power to forgive. And it's astounding. 
This morning we're going to dissect how he gets there, okay? I think it's going to be really helpful for us. If you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 45. It's found on page 38 if you're using one of the community Bibles. And while you're turning there, I'm going to do just a little recap um, of a couple of the chapters before chapter 45. Back in chapter 42, Joseph, he's no longer in the pits as a slave. He finds himself second in command in one of the global powerhouses of the day in Egypt. And there's this famine that goes throughout the whole land and people are coming into town and they're all coming in saying, we need food. And Egypt's got all this great storehouse of food because of some of the provisions that God has done through Joseph in Egypt. And who comes to his great surprise, but his brothers, the ones who sold him into slavery. They don't recognize Joseph, but they come before Joseph and they bow down. And then suddenly in verse 9 of chapter 42, look it up, chapter 42, verse 9 you see that Joseph remembers the dream he had as a teenager when them being represented as sheaves of wheat all bowed to him, the sheaf of wheat. And in that moment, he recognizes that this is what God had in store. God had actually been orchestrating something way beyond he could have fathomed and how he ended up in this particular place, but he knew at that moment God was doing something. And it's really rare in the text that you kind of get this looking back moment from a character within the narrative. But Joseph's really shrewd. Because he treats them harshly as if he doesn't know them. And he treats them as you would actually in that ancient Near Eastern context. You've got this band of brothers that have come and he treats them as if they're trying to scout out the land to take over Egypt and steal its food. So he treats them harshly. He puts them in prison for three days. <laughs> There's a part of you who's like, wait, where's this story going? Is this going down the path of revenge? Then he lets his brothers go and then he says, well, I'm going to hold on to Simeon, one of your brothers. And do you have any other brothers? How's your father doing? Well, we've got this other brother named Benjamin. Okay, well, if you want more food and you want your brother Simeon back, the next time you come bring this brother Benjamin with you, then you can have your brother back. And they say, oh, okay. So then they leave, and they've got their sacks full of grain, but then Joseph puts their money that they use to pay for that grain back in their sacks, and they're heading their way back, and they stop for camp at the night, you know, in the middle of the night. They're like, oh, the money's in the sacks, right? It's like, what's going on? He's going to think we stole the grain. We were trying to bamboozle him. So they get home. You get to chapter 43, and they recount this whole story to, um, to Jacob, their father. And they say, hey, we were there in Egypt. We bought this grain. He took Simeon. Okay, this is, this is awful, Dad. Um, and if we go back, he says we have to bring Benjamin. And Jacob's like, why would you tell him about Benjamin? We're like, we didn't know he was going to ask us to bring Benjamin. How are we supposed to know? And then we found all the money in our sacks from buying this grain, and we still have all the money. So Jacob's like, there's no way you're going. Judah makes the final plea, one of the other brothers. And so finally Jacob relents and sends Benjamin because the famine's so bad, their whole family's going to starve to death. So J you know, Jacob sends Benjamin, the other brothers, with twice as much money to go back to Egypt. When they get back to Egypt, Joseph throws this huge feast and says, oh, no, 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 no. I didn't put that money back in. Your Lord, your God has provided this money for you. And they're like, oh, that's weird. So then they have this giant feast, you know, and they have a really good time. <laughs> and then the next day they have more grain and they start on their way back with Simeon now. But Jacob, or Joseph rather, takes this silver cup. And does an ornery little trick. He puts the cup in Benjamin's bag. And as they're about to leave, the sentries there in Egypt stop the family. And they check the bag and they find the silver cup in Benjamin's bag. 
And Joseph says, arrest that man. He will be held in custody. And the brother's worst fear comes to realization. The one brother that their father didn't want to go and said, if you take actually Benjamin and he doesn't come back, I'm going to die. Finally, Reuben says some things. Some other brothers say some things. But Judah says, take me instead. And at that moment, we step into our chapter 45. And Joseph, he can't control himself anymore. He just loses it. He begins to weep. And this is like one of those messy cries. You know it when you see it. It's like, you're like, oh, man. It's like one of those na- nasty, messy cries. Like, you're just like, whoa, what's going on over there? And then it was so loud, the text says, like the whole block heard Joseph crying. And then finally the big reveal comes. This whole time the brothers had no idea it was Joseph. And Joseph says in verse 3, I am Joseph. How's my father doing? You know? Um, and they're just stunned. They sold their brother in slavery. They thought he was either dead or some pit somewhere. Never, ever, ever in their wildest dreams would they imagine that he's second in command. They're probably utterly terrified. The text says they're paralyzed. They can't even say anything because they're thinking all kinds of terrible thoughts of revenge might be coming their direction. And so Joseph quickly says, no, come close to me. As we heard read brilliantly by Micaiah, come close to me. And he says it again. I'm Joseph. And then he quickly assures them, don't be angry at yourselves for selling me into slavery. (laughs) I'm not angry at you. Wait, 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 what? And then he goes on to say how God had a bigger plan than they could have ever fathomed. Somehow God was behind all of this. And you're wondering, how on earth, Joseph, Are you able to do this? Think about this again, okay? Joseph's a teenager. He goes out to check on his brothers. His brother beat him up. They throw him in a pit, steal his clothes. While, and we find this out later in the text, in like chapters 42 through 44, he's crying out to his brothers for mercy in the pit. Brothers, don't do this. Don't do this. They sit down and have lunch. They're just chilling out. They were going to murder him but instead decided to sell him. They traffic their own brother. And they go about their day with some money in their pocket, ruin their father's life. And Joseph spent years upon years falsely imprisoned, unjustly enslaved, abused, years away from his father, away from his family, Serving a foreign family in a foreign land, all because of them. And Joseph says, hey, don't be angry with yourselves. (laughs) How on earth does he get there? Like, this is insane. Look with me here at verses 5 through 8. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be nothing, be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. And so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house. And ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now to be clear, what Joseph isn't saying is somehow God is the author of evil. 
He's not saying that. His brothers are the ones who sold him there, but God had a bigger plan. You see, God is not the cause of evil or the author of evil, but Joseph has a profound understanding of what's taking place. He understands that there are always two stories going on. There's the story that we experience firsthand with the emotions, the pain, the trauma. And then there's a bigger story of what God is doing behind the scenes that we can't even begin to fathom. There's the story of my brother sold me here. And there's also the story of God sent me here. And it reminds me of the words of the prophet Isaiah much later where he says, God, your ways are not my ways. Your thoughts are not my thoughts because they're so much bigger always. Why? Because our God is so much bigger in ways that we can't even begin to conceive such that even the most heinous of situations in our life, God will not waste but will use them for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. see, God is never, ever the author of evil. He's not the one who causes evil things in our life. And yet Joseph believed in a robustly giant God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-benevolent, life-orchestrating, such that even the most atrocious things in our life, and Joseph had some atrocious things in his life, somehow... God made a way to care for the world in ways he couldn't even have imagined. And here's the secret we learn from Joseph and his life that's still true for your life and mine. Here it is, and around forgiveness, and may that be more true to, to our experience. Here it is, you can only forgive as big as your God. Another way of saying that is, if there's something in your life, if there's someone in your life where you feel like you cannot forgive them, you don't have a forgiveness problem, you have a God problem. And I say that, and it just sounds so, I, you know, I feel like sometimes the church talks a lot about money, the church talks a lot about sex, the church talks about um, pride, and anger, and these are all really important things that we all have growth to do as we seek this life and life abundant that Jesus calls us to. One of the greatest sins, I think, in the church for us today is unforgiveness. That's so crucial that Jesus makes so, so central to following him. Four times here, in four verses, verses 5 through 9, Joseph makes the primary catalyst to what happened in his life, God. And we need to understand that our capacity to forgive directly correlates with the size and scope of our God. Now that also, it's really important before, when we start saying things like that for us to understand what forgiveness is and what forgiveness isn't, right? I think there's a lot of different mushy understandings out there when it comes to forgiveness, and when you look across the pages of Scripture, forgiveness is never portrayed as a feeling. You know what? I felt like it was time to forgive. No, that is never the way forgiveness is described in Scripture. Forgiveness is never equated to, secondly, to forgetting. Well, I don't think I can forget about what you did, so I don't think I can forgive you. That's not, what's, that's not what forgiveness is, and that's not what, it, what we see across the pages of Scripture. Thirdly, forgiveness is never excusing. I know what you did is bad, but it's going to be okay. No. 
And then fourthly, forgiveness is never empty words. Hey, I'm going to tell you I forgive you and then I'm going to treat you like garbage. No. That is never the way forgiveness is described. The way that forgiveness is described in Scripture is as a decision. A decision of the will, as painful as it may be, as much as your heart may not be in it in the moment, as as much as you feel like that memory is right at the forefront of your mind, it's a decision. So what are you deciding? This is really important. Forgiveness is courageously naming and releasing wrong done to you. Forgiveness is courageously naming and releasing wrong done to you. So first, let's unpack this a little bit, okay? So forgiveness courageously names evil as evil. It calls it what it is. It steps out and says, hey, this is wrong. It stares evil in the face and says, this is not okay. And in our cultural moment, I think forgiveness is not very prevalent because we've made everything, quote unquote, right for me, very subjective so that there's no objective to confront evil. If there's no objective to confront evil, how are we supposed to call evil evil? And then how do we have the setup to ask for forgiveness? And what do we see here with Joseph? You sold me into slavery. Later on in chapter 50, what does he say? You meant this for evil. He names it. It's not sugarcoating it. It's not excusing it. He names it. It's wrong. So first, it courageously names the wrong done to you. But then secondly, it courageously releases the wrong done to you. And the reason this takes so much courage is because, kind of pointing back to what I started with, what do we want in those moments? We want justice. And when we think about releasing the wrong that was done to you, some of the questions in the back of our mind is, well, who's going to make it right? And will I get what I deserve? The answer is no. But the other side of that is you might get something better. What might you get that's better? One, you might win back your family. You might win back that friend. You might win back that colleague. What do we see here? Nobody wants the beginning of Joseph's story, right? Nobody wants to be in the pit. (laughs) No one wants to be lied about and then go to prison. Nobody. But when you look at the end, when he's there embracing his brothers, weeping on their neck, and they're weeping on his neck. How many of your relationships in your life right now do you wish that was the, the story? That there could be this weeping embrace. That you could win back your family Win back your friends. But it requires this proactive releasing. So first, you might win back your family. And I want to say this quick caveat. This morning's message is on forgiveness, not reconciliation. Sometimes we mix these two terms up. Reconciliation restores the relationship to its full trust, and we begin to open ourselves back up to hurt, to wounds, and joys. Forgiveness sets the stage. Releasing the wrong sets the stage. But forgiveness doesn't always lead to full-blown reconciliation. Those two are not the exact same thing, although forgiveness is essential to start the process. Forgiveness is required. Reconciliation may look different for a variety of reasons, both for the safety and the justice and the care of both parties involved. So first, you might win back your family, but then secondly, you might win back yourself. 
When you lease wrong done to you and to the, you know, by the other, you're not only releasing the other person from that evil, but you're releasing yourself. How many times when you're consumed with bitterness or revenge, you feel like you lose yourself and you don't even recognize yourself in some of the actions that you're doing? In forgiveness, you have the opportunity to actually to rediscover yourself. And don't we see that with Joseph here? He's finally able to be himself. He's not only released his brothers, but he releases himself, which is why all these tears come down. He finally is able to just truly let his emotion go and then embrace and hug and care for his brothers. He not only releases them, but he releases himself in the process. And the freedom and the beauty of that story is astounding. Forgiveness is courageously naming and releasing wrong done to you. And you can only forgive as big as your God. What are you wrestling to, for, to free? You can only stare evil in the face if your God is bigger than that evil. And call it what it is. And you can only release that wrong done to you if you know that a God full of justice will carry out his good work and a God full of compassion will hold you as you fall. That is the only way. And so I want to ask, I want to return kind of to that early question we asked at the beginning of our time. Who's the one person in your life whom it feels impossible to forgive? Right now. Who's the one person in your life, and you're like, one? <laughs> right? Who's the one person, just go with one for now. Yeah, yeah, right? Just go with one. Just go, who's the one person in your life who it feels impossible to forgive. And listen, I don't know your story, and I want to say this too, because there's, there's a decent amount of caveats in the midst of this and how this gets abused. Receiving counseling or walking with a good therapist or even a good mediator within relationships in certain circumstances is truly essential and helpful in this process. So no way in shape or form am I saying this is something that's a solo project. But I also know we all have that someone. Not because I know your story, but because I know human nature. <laughs> so who is it for you? Is it a family member? Sometimes that's the worst. Is it a friend? Is it a coworker? Is it a coworker from a previous job? Is it yourself? What would it look like for you to name evil as evil? What would it look like for you to release that wrong done to you. If your hurt feels too big to forgive, ask yourself how big is your God? And trust me, if God gave Joseph of all people the power to do the unthinkable, he can do the same in and through you. And imagine how beautiful the story can be. Now, I know the excuses we give as soon as I start to talk through this. I was starting to think through this story, and it's like, because I give them, <laughs> frankly. It's like, well, hey, 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 wait a second. Joseph is like the vice president, like, in this story. Like, he's in a place of power. Things worked out for him. That's not really fair. I'm still in the pit. Okay, I get it. Some of you may be saying, well, look, his brothers look like they're actually pretty remorseful by the end. What if someone doesn't care? The reality is, is you may not see how things work out this side of heaven. You may not.
find yourself on the upswing after injustice has been incurred or brought against you. And you may never hear remorse from the voice of your oppressor or the person who has offended you. The reason you release them, at the very least, is for your very own soul. Now, I know, um, I know I've told this story before, but it bears repeating in light of today's content. Um, you know, my dad left our family when I was younger, and after he was gone for about seven years, he came back when I was in college, I was a sophomore, and he came back with his wife, whom he happened to be married to at the same time he was married to my mom. It's a long story. He came back and he asked for forgiveness. And I remember not wanting to give it. I was like, dude, where were you? <laughs> I had to figure out how to be a guy without you. Where were you? And I remember sitting up in my dorm room reading Matthew chapter 18. Listen, I gave my life to Jesus when I was in middle school. I got baptized when I was 19. But it was right there in that dorm room when my faith became real to me around probably one of the most overlooked sins in our culture, the sin of unforgiveness. And in Matthew 18, Jesus tells this astounding parable story of, of, of this servant who owed so much to the king, so much. It was an inordinate amount of money, and the king says, you're forgiven. Your debts have been paid. You have been released. And he goes. And what is his first thing he does after he's been released of all this debt? Is he goes and finds this servant who owes him like $5 in comparison. He beats him up, and he throws him in debtor's prison and says, you won't be released until you pay back everything you owe me. And the king hears that and says, that's it. You didn't get it. Now you go in prison and you're going to be in prison until you pay off your debt. And then Jesus says, this is the story of when we don't forgive others how God engages us. It's super sobering. Whoa. <laughs> Jesus does not play nicely with unforgiveness. And I remember sitting there and thinking, if I'm going to follow Jesus, I don't have a choice. It's not about how I feel. It's not about whether I forget it or not. It's a matter of what I will decide to do, and I decide to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And I remember forgiving him, and, you know, it was fine for a couple years. And then he disappeared again. <laughs> and he's somewhere on the other side of the globe. But I've also released him. Not every day is easy. You know, forgiveness is not a period in time. It's cyclical. And some days I'm frustrated, but my hope and my prayer is that I truly release him for my own heart. And now I'm at the space where I really do pray he finds what he's looking for and that God grants him peace wherever he is. Even as I was thinking about this week's message, I was walking my dog and I was like, God, I really do. Even if he never says hi to me again, may he know peace with you. Um, and that's my hope. It's not clean. It's pretty messy. I'm not going to get what I quote unquote deserve. But I hope it's better for me and for him. Um, and really, isn't that better than the alternative? Could you imagine the, another ending to Joseph's life? Where he's like, you know what? I'm going to put these ten brothers in prison. Jacob, dad, welcome home. Let's hang out. Benjamin, what's going on? But the rest of them, they're in prison. And he drowns himself in bitterness, always trying to destroy his brothers to get revenge. Is bitterness as an old man really better than a family reunited? Is that really better? 
Well, as I was thinking about this text this morning, too, a question came into my mind. I mean, Joseph didn't get there overnight, did he? I mean, these are years where he's learning to forgive others. He actually never brings charges, as far as we know, against Potiphar's wife. He never brings charges against the cupbearer who forgot him. I mean, there's actually a lot of different spaces where Joseph was almost training as he's trusting Yahweh, trusting God in the midst of this on how to forgive. And so began to ask, are there everyday practices that you and I can be engaging to kind of expand our vision of our big God as well as enlarge our reach for forgiveness? And I want to highlight three things, just real practical tips to help us expand our vision of our great God and enlarge our reach of forgiveness. And here's the first, here's the first, update your everyday language. Update your everyday language. You know, I, I feel like if you are a parent or even if you were ever a child, what's the one thing like when you hurt your sibling or hurt somebody in your class, what's your teacher or your parents say? It's like, hey, you need to go over there and you need to tell them, I am sorry for something very specific. Say it. Don't just say you're sorry. I want to know you're sorry for what you did and then ask for forgiveness. And then you got to tell the other person, what do you say? I forgive you, right? We do this. I do this with Ava and Israel all the time. I'm constantly in mediation mode. Like, he took my toy. Okay, what are we going to say here? You know, walk through this. And then when we get, when we become adults, it's like we lose all of that. Right? Like suddenly all of the pieces of that equation fall apart. It's like, well, I didn't do anything. That's the first one. Well, the second is like, you know what? I, I, I'm sorry. Well, what are you sorry for? Like, let's be clear. What are we all in agreement for? I'm sorry for doing this. And then if you actually, just try this, okay? If you actually say, I forgive you. What's like the response? Like, hey, who are you forgiving me? Like, it's like all of a sudden it's like one of the most pompous responses. I'm sorry for doing that. I forgive you. Whoa. Okay. I, what do we want instead? What do we want instead? It's okay. It's okay. It's not okay. That's not the pathway we're going down. I'm sorry for this specifically. Will you forgive me? I forgive you. That was wrong. It hurt me. Let's move on together in forgiveness. Quick story as an aside, I probably don't have time for it, but it's really fun. Is when I was on vacation a couple years ago and we were with <laughs> Allie's family, my daughter stole some chocolate. I think I've told this story before, but it's just so good. She stole some chocolate and ate it. And like I came around the corner, I was like, what are you doing? We were in a store and she's like, nothing. She's got like chocolate all over her face. <laughs> I said, well, we're going to go apologize and we're going to pay for this chocolate. We go up to the front. Bless her heart, the, the, the cashier was like, you know, I said, Ava, what are you going to say? I'm sorry for stealing the chocolate. And the cashier says, it's okay. <laughs> oh, man, I was so frustrated because we're leaving. I was like, no, she's out. You know, we're walking away. I was like, do you see when you steal stuff, you hurt people. You hurt people. And she goes, she didn't seem like she was hurt. <laughs> I was like, man, come on, society. Let's work on this. Like, we're training up a whole generation that whatever you do, it doesn't matter. It's all okay. Like, no. Forgiveness is important. Let's use everyday language that really fits a way that cultivates lasting relationships. Update your everyday language. Number two, make a daily decision to forgive. Keep this short accounts. You know, it's, it's in the same way it's like if you spill something on the counter. If you clean it up right away, it's pretty easy to clean up. The longer it sits there, it's like you're getting out the different sprays and the, you know, the sponge. And you're like, man, this sucker hardened, you know. If you keep a short account, it's a lot easier to clean up. The longer you let things sit, the harder it is to reconcile. You know, I came home this past week, made a big mistake. I came home. I see Israel, my son. He's got these big tears in his eyes. And I was like, buddy, how you doing? He's like, dad, you gave away my Lunchable. <laughs> I was like, hey. 
good to see you too, buddy. Uh, and so I get down, I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. So this was 5 o'clock. He's been thinking about this since noon, by the way. Um, there's th these different Lunchables, and I guess one had Oreos in it. I didn't know that, like, he had picked out. He was super excited. I put it in Ava's lunch. I pack Ava's lunch literally every morning. I was like, this looks fun. Ava was like, Oreos. I was like, yeah, Oreos. <laughs> you know, I'm putting them in the lunchbox. She zips the beast up, and she's like, ah. I come home, Israel's like, those are my Oreos. <laughs> and I, I seriously, I got down there and I was like, buddy, I am so sorry. I didn't know. I didn't mean to give away your Lunchable. Can you forgive me? These big tears. He runs over, gives me this big hug. He goes, yeah, I love you. And I was like, ah. <laughs> you know, he was noticeably lighter. A short account. He was ready to name evil right away. <laughs> Oreos are a big deal. Still as adults. Don't take my Oreos, right? Like. But then he was willing to forgive and keep that short account. So make a daily decision to forgive. And then thirdly, tell God's story to yourself every day. Tell God's story to yourself every day. We have a huge God who's astoundingly enormous. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1 that he holds everything together. The only reason we can step out this morning is because God is sustaining the universe. And then we simultaneously recognize across the pages of Scripture that our sin is also massive. It's huge. So massive, in fact, that God thought that the only way he could forgive, release it, was to send his son to die on the cross for our sins. Think about that. We have this huge God. We have this massive sin that we have incurred against a holy and beautiful and glorious God. And when we struggle to forgive our neighbor, a family member, and we struggle to understand how God is working behind the scenes, remember that this is the same God who orchestrated all of history in order that he might die on the cross for us. This wasn't happenstance. It wasn't accidental. He orchestrated all of history that he might die, purchase our forgiveness and in the person and work of Jesus Christ, we find forgiveness free of charge, such that while he's being crucified to his murderers, he looks them in the eye and says, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. That's our God. And when we forgive in the most obscene of situations, that's when we're most like our God. And frankly, that's when we have some of the sweetest moments of communion with our God. Corey Ten Boom, um, she uh, spent time in a Nazi concentration camp in World War II. And after the war was over, she went over to war-torn Germany to proclaim the good news that God forgives everything. Everything. There is nothing. If Jesus didn't die for everything, he died for nothing. And while she's giving this news to this church that's packed out, most people leave in silence, except for one guy who comes to the front. Some of you may have heard this story. And he comes to the front, tears in his eyes, and he puts out his hand to say thank you. She realizes in that moment, that was the Nazi guard who had her and her sister stripped naked, throw their clothes at his feet. And while their bodies are emaciated, stand single file in the concentration camp. This is the first time she'd come face to face with one of her captors after her release. 
And he put out his hand and he said, I've become a Christian since then. I'm sorry for what I've done. Thank you for teaching about forgiveness. <laughs> Will you forgive me? And she froze, y'all. I mean, right? Wouldn't you? She froze. Forgiveness, when it really matters, is never easy. And at this point, I have to read you her own words because uh, they're just way too good. She says, and I stood there. I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy, that's her sister, had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had, had ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive me, forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole be being, bringing tears to my eyes. Doesn't that sound like Joseph? I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. You can only forgive as big as your God. Forgiveness is courageously naming and releasing wrong done to you. How big is your hurt? Is your God bigger still? Don't wait for the emotion. Don't wait for the right time. Those may never come. It's time to let it go. Let's pray. God, this, I actually think this is one of the hardest sermons. One of the hardest issues is the hiddenness of unforgiveness in our hearts. Holy Spirit, convict us, guide us into new life. Free us from the bondage of bitterness that we might know the life you long for us. And so know the joy and the intimacy of communion with you and maybe, just maybe, the reconciliation with our fellow man. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen, amen, and amen.